Hello and welcome to What is California? I am your host, Stu Van Eersdale, and this is the premiere episode, the very first episode of What is California? Season one, episode one, happy California admission day. For those of you who observe, I hope you're having a good one. I wanted to make sure we rang in the occasion with the appropriate ceremony. So we're going to go ahead and share a birthday with California. I hope the state doesn't mind. And I hope you're celebrating in the most appropriate fashion possible with your significant other, loved ones, families, uh, you name it, doing something to commemorate this momentous day in California history. Champagne? Okay, sure. Fireworks? Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, let's see what else. Party hats? Okay. Water balloons, I think those are forbidden. There's some legislation on the governor's desk to outlaw water balloons. I would not be surprised. So yeah, make sure you are celebrating with the appropriate levels of caution and discretion befitting our great and imperiled state. Our guest today is none other than Governor Jerry Brown. Yes, Governor Jerry Brown, not just some random Jerry Brown I found on Facebook. No, this is the real Jerry Brown, California's longest serving governor, the 34th and 39th governor of our fair state. And he was gracious enough to join us for the first episode of this show. We had a great talk and we'll get to that in a second. But first, I just wanna tell you a little bit about this show, which you can expect from What is California, what the show is and what it kind of isn't so you can kind of set your expectations accordingly and uh, proceed apace. Let's start with kind of what it is. I am a journalist based in Sacramento. I have worked for Sacktown Magazine where I was a senior editor for a few years. I've also written for the New York Times. I have written for Slate, Esquire, Vanity Fair, among many other publications. But uh, now I teach journalism and media at Sacramento State here in town and I am fascinated with California as an idea. Yes, I love it as a place too. I love to drive and travel and see the state just like everybody else. I'm transfixed by the state's history. It's good, it's bad, it's quite ugly. The whole spectrum of it, I wanna know it all. I'm transfixed by its food. I'm transfixed by its technology. I'm transfixed by its art. I'm transfixed by the idea of 40 million people coexisting in 800 miles from top to bottom, an ocean on one side, a mountain range on the other, and what exactly we all must do to advance the fifth largest economy in the world. This idea is like none other anywhere in the world, and this experiment we're living in is the subject of this show. When I ask the question, what is California? I don't mean that rhetorically. That is the fundamental question driving every episode of this show. Our guests will kind of untangle and puzzle out that question through topics like culture, geography, politics, their own experiences, both growing up in California or perhaps acclimatizing to California, moving here, learning to love it, learning to live with it, and generally taking it all in, processing it. 
sharing it with their own audiences, their friends, their families, their communities, and trying to get to the bottom of this big, messy place where we live, where we call home, and hopefully get a little bit closer to the answer of that genuine question, what is California? Now, let me just tell you a little bit about what the show is not, which you should not expect to hear at What is California. This is not a news podcast. There are several very, very good news podcasts out there about California, and I can recommend them. Uh, California State of Mind is a good one. The California Sun podcast another good one. KQED has a good one. Uh, there are others, and I'm sorry for anyone I'm leaving out. It's nothing personal, but they exist. You can get really good current events and news podcasts about California out there. But when it comes to the more general kind of conversation about California, that's something that I was really looking for. And so that's what this is going to focus on. There will be some news angles, some kind of current events topics here or there, but we're really not going to be focusing much on current events. That said, of course, Governor Brown and I talked a little bit about the upcoming recall election uh, that's on September 14th. And so that does come up a little bit. But for the most part, we're talking about Governor Brown's upbringing. We're talking about his political career. We're talking about the people and the places that influenced him and trying to get a better read on the ideas of California that shaped him into the person he is and the political figure that he was during his career as Secretary of State, Governor, Mayor, Attorney General, and then Governor again. These are all parts of the whole that I wanted to explore and talk about with Governor Brown. Just a few quick housekeeping notes. If you are interested in subscribing to the podcast, it's available wherever you get podcasts. If you're interested in following us on Twitter, we are at WhatCalifornia. You can also subscribe to our free What is California newsletter over at Substack. And the URL for that is in the show notes, but it's whatiscalifornia.substack.com. Again, that's a free newsletter. The podcast goes right there. And there's also a weekly newsletter of weekend reads. Just cool stuff happening around California that I wanted to point out to the audience. I think you might be interested in knowing more about that stuff. Again, these are all free for now. Uh, there is a Patreon where you can sponsor us. It's under my name, Stu Van Airsdale, and also What is California. I'll put a link to that in the show notes too. All right. So, Governor Jerry Brown, how was it that Governor Jerry Brown appeared on the first episode of What is California, a brand new podcast about the Golden State? Great question. So as it happens, Miriam Powell, who wrote one of the best books about California, it's called The Browns of California, is a guest on the first season of What is California. You can look forward to her interview in a few weeks. She had mentioned during our interview that Governor Brown was still doing interviews, still talking to folks. And as it happened, I also had talked to Governor Brown a few years ago for a profile I did of his wife, Ann Gust Brown, for Sacktown Magazine. So we still had some mutual contacts, and I thought, well, listen, that's a pretty good recommendation, a pretty good referral. So I made the inquiry to Governor Brown's folks, and I mentioned, here's the show, here's the trailer, here are some of our other guests, and would Governor Brown be interested in appearing? And it took a little bit of time, but we made it happen. And so I'm very, very grateful for Governor Brown and his folks for making this happen, for accommodating this interview. I think it went really well. I think it's really illuminating. Uh, he tells us some stuff that I haven't really heard before or read before. Again, kind of using that springboard of Miriam Powell's masterpiece about the Brown family, we got into some new and different stuff that I hope is illuminating for you as well. So without further ado, 
Here is me with Governor Jerry Brown on the premiere of What is California? I hope you enjoy it. Governor Jerry Brown, welcome to What is California? It is such an honor and a privilege to have you here. This podcast premieres, you're its first guest. This podcast premieres on Thursday, September 9th, which is California Admission Day. I'm curious, have you ever like celebrated or recognized California Admission Day over the years? Uh, well, of course, we took the holiday uh, when I was younger. It was a state holiday. We didn't have to go to school. So it was first Labor Day and then Admission Day. And uh, during my first governorship, uh, some of the members of the legislature decided they wanted to make it a three-day holiday so that it would uh, occur, I think, on Friday or Monday. And I vetoed that on the ground that the holiday should be on the actual day uh, of the admission of California. And secondly, uh, adding uh, another holiday to the weekend would stimulate unnecessary driving and trips. So I vetoed that. But of course, after I left the governorship, the, the prevailing pressures in the state legislature, uh, which are more interested in uh, extending the, the three, uh, creating a three-day weekend rather than memorializing California history, uh, that, that prevailed. So there's not a lot of interest in admission day, I would say it's virtually unknown today. Uh, I think it's been a long time uh, since admission day uh, was celebrated. I think it was the first one in 1850. They say there were lots of celebrations, uh, but, and, but maybe in the years succeeding. Uh, but now we have a lot of other things on our on our plate and our agenda. So yeah, it's definitely uh, going into disuse. Where are we reaching you today? Where are you calling in from? Are you at your ranch? I'm at my ranch, yeah. For folks who aren't familiar with it, for listeners who aren't familiar with it, where is your ranch? And maybe can you set the scene for us a little bit? Well, there's a very large lake in California called Clear Lake. We're about 30 to 30, about 35 miles uh, east of Clear Lake. And we're about 13 miles uh, west of a little town called Williams. And uh, the exact location, in re- that's the east-west location, but in re- reference to Sacramento, we're, uh, we're about an hour and five minutes uh, from Sacramento northwest. And we're about two hours, uh, two hours and five minutes north of San Francisco. That's where it is. And we're along, well, and we're next to uh, uh, the major artery through California called uh, Interstate 5. Interstate 5 is about 13 miles to the to the east. Have you liked being up there since the end of your second term? Yes. What appeals to you about that part of the state in particular? Well, I like Northern California. I grew up here uh, before moving down to Los Angeles for a few decades. And so I know the area. I've been in many places as a child, although not, I'd never come to Calusa until um, 19, sometime in the early 1960s. My father took me here to the mountain house uh, that still stood then, the little hotel. The hotel. Um, and he took me, uh, the highway patrol drove, drove us and we came by, but we were only here for a short period. Uh, but why do I like it? Well, this is a ranch of 2,500 acres. Uh, we, I built a house here, so, which I call the Mountain House Three, because the, the two prior mountain houses uh, were destroyed, uh, one in 1907 
and one in 1971. So it, it, it's, and it's very well situated. It's right on a, a road. It used to be a stagecoach stop. My great-grandfather wanted to be an innkeeper, I think because his father was an innkeeper. And I visited uh, their little, their inn, uh, which is right on a, on a road uh, in a small part of, in, in, what, in the western part of Germany. So anyway, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting spot. Right now it's very hot, very dry. Uh, there were fires last year. Uh, there haven't been fires so far this year. Uh, but it, uh, it's basically now cattle country. It was a place of homesteads. There was a school nearby. Uh, this uh, was a post office, the, the NATO post office. There are probably a dozen families living in, fairly close by. And all of that has been swept aside with the uh, changes in the economy and history. So people moved into town because we are off the grid. Uh, there's no electrical hookups here. And uh, there was no air conditioning, and uh, probably the probably the wheat, mostly wheat farming, and then uh, the stagecoach that came by every day uh, used to go up to the spas, uh, of which there were many. Some people say it rivaled Switzerland in the uh, mineral springs and the spas that uh, Calusa and Lake County had. And then there were the mines, the quicksilver and the sulfur mines, and all of that uh, made for a uh, a viable daily stagecoach stop. But with the coming of the car, uh, with the playing out of the mines, uh, with the uh, decline of uh, visiting spas for a month or two uh, in a horse-drawn uh, carriage, uh, this place uh, came to be what it is, and almost entirely uh, land, grazing land, uh, for, for cattle. And all of my neighbors, in one way or another, are involved in in cattle. Do you ever miss Sacramento or Oakland or LA or other parts of California you've called home over the years? No, no, I, I don't. Uh, no, maybe if I visited, I might I'll have fond uh, memories. But uh, no. what would you say is your earliest memory of California? My earliest memory. Probably my earliest memory would be at the uh, Russian, uh, Russian River at a place called Hacienda. There's a, pla there's a place called the Hacienda Beach. There's a bridge, uh, a number of cabins. These were, it was a vacation spot. And I think I was, I, I, I wasn't even two, I don't think, because my earliest memory is my mother washing me in the sink and not liking that and wanting to get out. And I have a, I don't know why I have that memory, but nobody's ever told me that, and we don't have a photograph of it. So I, I feel fairly confident that, yes, I remember uh, that period when I was small enough to fit in a, in a sink. And the sinks weren't that big in those days. <laughs> Do you have a favorite memory of California, like a moment no. or an occasion or something that reminds you of what's special about this place? Not a favorite. I think a favorite would be that would require a mentality of ranking. Like there's maybe a hundred spots and my most favorite is and my least favorite in the middle, medium favorite. No, I, I don't think, I, I think it's hard to frame a place like that. Um, I can tell you, I very much enjoy being where I am. Uh, and I've enjoyed you know, different places. I, I always 
liked going to New York uh, when I was in law school at, uh, at Yale, going down on the train. Uh, I, when I moved to, from San Francisco to Los Angeles, actually I lived in Oakland, I moved to Los Angeles, I found it very exciting to be part of that dynamic uh, environment in 1966 when I moved down. So yeah, there, there are a lot of places that, that uh, I, I would recall with fondness, uh, but um, I think my mind is, is inclined to more uh, theoretical or conceptual uh, notions or uh, thoughts as opposed to, oh, we had a picnic, uh, you know, in Santa Cruz in uh, 1956. Wasn't that interesting? Now, I, I'm sure that if you gave me enough time, I could uh, think about spots. Like, for example, uh, another spot in the Russian River. The Russian River, by the way, is about 75 miles north of San Francisco. Um, and so uh, I, I visited, I was there yesterday, and I stopped by uh, what used to be Roland's uh, Sandy Beach. And it was the only sandy beach along the Russian River, which were mostly rocky beaches. And we went there. I went there as a very young child. Like my sister was born in 1945, was in a little um, playpen. That's uh, how, so it must, wasn't too long after 1945. Anyway, it was a sandy beach. Today, it's not a sandy beach. It's very overgrown, and it's the terminus for Burke's canoes, which you can uh, rent upriver, canoe down to this, what used to be Roland Sandy Beach, and they'll pick you up uh, in a little bus and take you back to where your car is. So that is, a, uh, Roland's Beach is a fond memory, as is taking a Burke's canoe ride, which I did on my honeymoon uh, in, in January, uh, I think it was January 19th of uh, 2005. So yes, there are a lot of uh, very pleasant memories, exciting memories, uh, and you know, we could spend the whole time recounting that. Just just on the Russian River, I could keep you going for a half an hour. Well, let me let me get into that maybe more theoretical vein because I was curious also if you had a moment in your life where you first sensed that California was different from other states and regions in the United States. No, I've never had such a moment. In fact, the closest thing is when I came across the book, although I didn't read it, at California, The Great Exception. Uh, I knew about Karen McWilliams. I actually met him uh, in New York when he was publisher of The Nation. So I knew about it. And it was only uh, just a few years ago that I actually read some of it, but not all of it. That, so other than that, I mean, California was what we learned about. In the fourth grade, we learned about the missions. Uh, we learned about the seven hills of San Francisco, like they were like the seven hills of Rome. Uh, but I didn't compare it with other uh, cities in the world. Other than compare it to the hills of Rome, I did compare because our teacher gave that comparison. You mentioned New York and law school a bit ago, and I was wondering if maybe New Yorker, the phrase New Yorker, that kind of connotes a type or a set of qualities. Does the word Californian do the same, aside from someone who was born or lives here? Does that connote specific qualities, do you think? Maybe in, some, in the mind of some journalists or some writers. But California, uh, between, I have a cousin in Modoc. And Modoc is very different than uh, Berkeley or San Mateo or San Diego. So we're, it's a very diverse 
state. It's a very large state. Population-wise, we're the biggest. So we don't really have anything more in common than just like a demonym, a common demonym in like the franchise tax board. That's basically it. What's a demonym? Californian, you know, Sacramentan. Demonym. Demonym, yeah. Is that a demonym? Yeah. What is de- what, what is that word, dem? D-E-M-O-N-Y-M. Is that demos, people? Yeah, it's a classification of people based on their shared origin or uh, shared location. I know what an antonym is. I know what a metonym is, but I do not know what a demonym is. Right, Californian. First time. Well, We're, that's our demonym. We're, we have that in common. So. Oh, the name of the people. That's probably what I mean. Demos means people in Greek. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I guess what I was curious about was, you know, just how Californian reflects a specific set of qualities or, you know, anything that might be similar to, say, a New Yorker for that matter or anyone else. Well, these are, uh, you know, journalistic uh, conventions, but I would say that, that there was... Historically, not, maybe not so much, uh, a lot of moving about, uh, a lot of things, certainly immigration. I mean, that's the most obvious. California, since the gold rush, has had uh, one wave of immigration after another. That, that's character. The gold rush certainly was a, a big mark in the formation of, of California, as is uh, uh, the Pacific Ocean, uh, the coming of the Chinese, who then excluded and persecuted in one form or another uh, during many decades of the state. So it is a place of, of uh, turbulence or change. It's, uh, I think when I campaigned for president, we'd go through uh, places like Iowa and Maine. Uh, there wasn't those waves of change leading to growth. And uh, the, the cost of the price of land was so much lower. Whereas in California, the land prices keep increasing because uh, the the number of people increases and the wealth of a certain number of people keeps increasing. So that drives up the price of land and that then attracts uh, building uh, in things that you wouldn't find. You know, people uh, build a billion dollar stadium for the Warriors or Coliseum. So that that takes wealth and it takes people uh, to go. that, that's a characteristic of a, of a dynamic state. But of course, Texas and Nevada and uh, Florida, some of these other states, they're, they're very much growing themselves. Let's uh, maybe talk about governing a little bit. I know you have been pretty insistent, and you've kind of alluded to it already in our conversation so far. You've been pretty emphatic that governors don't have legacies. And Well, let me ask you this. Uh, just to have a test question, aside from Proposition 187, leaving that off, that was a vote uh, initiative. What's the legacy of Pete Wilson? In your mind? Well, can you really disaggregate? What's the legacy of what, what's the legacy of Earl Warren? What I'm trying to say is, governors come and go, and legacies are relatively rare. Uh, a scandal, you know, maybe uh, Harding. What is Harding's? What is he best known for? Teapot Dome. All right. What is Woodrow Wilson? Maybe entering uh, World War One. Right. So, uh, who has a legacy? Probably uh, Mayor Curley in Boston. It's kind of a rogue, and uh, they wrote a book about him, The Last Hurrah. So, I I think a legacy implies memory, and uh, people in you know, uh, the mayor of Daly City or even the mayor of San Francisco, for the most part, it'd be hard to identify a legacy. 
if by that you're trying to to encapsulate uh, some event or some something else, uh, but uh, I think it I think it's a a term that has been built up recently, been used a lot, uh, and it, it may apply. Um, you know, if you think of the, the Thatcher, a legacy of uh, you know disinvesting in public housing and uh, the university, uh, th that that might be a, a legacy. But um, or other thing, if you have to ask Hiram, uh, Hiram Johnson, now what's his legacy? Well, very easy to remember. He created the initiative, the recall, uh, and the referendum. So that that's a very and that's lived a long time. He also created. Uh, I think the Public Utilities Commission, but we don't think of that so much. So all I'm saying is, unless you're an historian looking to, um, what do they call that, periodization, you know, this period, and then you give it a name or something. But I don't think, when I think back, you know, uh, you know, what would it be that I gave the shortest inauguration, seven and a half minutes, that, that's something memorable. I created a farm labor bill uh, that I slept, uh, uh, you know, on sparsely furnished apartment, uh, that may be, that I, re that I restored the mansion after 40 years of relative neglect. I mean, th there's so many things depending upon what you're focusing on. But I generally think the term is more, um, it, it doesn't uh, illuminate, it doesn't clarify uh, my sense. So if you have anything specifically, you know, what did you do the third year that you were governor? Maybe I can remember. Or something else, but it, it's not, uh, I think those things are, are more conventions of more recent uh, journalism and political uh, writing or commentary. We have to have some way of comparing leaders. I mean, we have to have some way, I mean, you can't just decouple Proposition 187 from Pete Wilson's legacy. Right, how, would you com how would you compare, how would you compare Wilson with Duke Major? Well, Hold on. I, I don't think that's a very useful comparison. But what I'm trying to say is, I'm not really asking you for an answer because I don't think there is an answer. I don't think there, uh, there there's something. Uh, if you want to probe into it, uh, Wilson's management, you can get. There, there's a lot you could say, but it's really material for scholars of California government, not for the general reader, in my opinion. That's totally fair. Uh, I think that you know the fact that I don't necessarily know or couldn't distinguish between or very specifically anyhow the legacy of duke majin versus wilson or earl warren uh that's i think that's less a testament to the fact they have a legacy than, than i don't know anything about them wait a minute i feel confident that if you do the survey 99 percent of the people would not be able to intelligently answer the question of comparing warren to duke majin to wilson maybe wilson because of 187 because of the whole rise of Latinos. And he inspired a generation of policy activists and politicians. But, and but yeah, that was a move. That, so that makes it easy. Uh, but if you take that out and just say, Wilson went to the office virtually every day for eight years. Now, what the hell did he do? And he did a lot. But how that is memorialized outside of scholarly books. And by the way, there are very few books on California history. I don't want to, maybe you're plowing new ground here. Uh, but generally, states are not the object uh, of serious scholarship. Now, they are a little, you can find some books on California. In fact, I have 20 books on California. But it's not, it's just, we're dealing with news. We're dealing with, you know, the Texas abortion statute, uh, recall, 
polarization, Obama, Biden, McConnell. This is all the hurly-burly of, uh, of politics. And uh, government, uh, as I experienced it, is more mundane. You know, you show up, uh, you, you, first of all, you got to hire your staff, and then you carry out the legislature puts in 4,000 bills. They'll probably land 1,200 on your desk. You'll probably sign 90% of them. And, uh, but then you'll have an issue and the reporters will be hounding you about this or that. And at the end, and I've had the end twice of eight years, if you say to yourself, well, what the hell really happened? Uh, well, it, it, it takes a certain amount of humor and insight uh, to formulate a, a worthwhile answer, in my opinion. I just think of, you know, governors like your father, for example. I mean, he's got his name on the aqueduct. You know, he wanted that. He knew it mattered. Um, and so just being able to drive down that main artery you talked about, I-5, and see that, you yeah. know, every 15 miles or so is just, is, is remarkable. And that's a legacy. I don't, I don't know if that... Well, that, and that is a very specific thing. It's a pipe. It's an aqueduct. So, yeah, that's, you can identify that. And uh, that, that connects California. Uh, water is a, is a big issue. So yeah, that that's something you, it's pretty easy to talk about. You have always urged Californians to think bigger, to imagine bigger ambitions and pursue bigger goals. When you were governor in your second uh, run, it was the bullet train, for example, was a big, big one. Climate was another one. And, but that said, I've always wondered, like, when you say bigger, bigger compared to what? Are we comparing ourselves to California in the past? Are we comparing ourselves to other states? Are we comparing ourselves to other countries? What are you talking about, are you referencing big issues? Yeah, big issues, big swings at big policy okay. and big act, action. Okay, well, climate, climate's a big issue. The forest fires, uh, are, they're still burning as we speak. And this Dixie fire is now being estimated to be uh, become uh, the largest fire ever. It's been burning for a month and a half. So climate and the consequences of climate, uh, that's a big issue. Uh, as opposed, you know, there may be some other issues that, well, there's a lot. There's always hot issues, you know. People are talking about uh, the prior housing. Oh boy, we need a more affordable housing. Trouble is that the market capitalism, as currently construed, generates uh, inequality such that there are 10, 20, 30 percent of the people have a lot of money, uh, varying amounts. And then two, the Federal Reserve makes money very cheap, and so for those with money, they can easily borrow and uh, and buy houses and bid up the price. But there's a lot of other people, 30, 40% that can't compete, they can't uh, uh, purchase the house. And so they have to move out or become renters. And that is a very painful problem. But how you get at something that involves the Federal Reserve, uh, the tax code, and the pattern of, uh, of our current global economy and their constituent supply chains. You know, that, that's, that's a, a big world here, so, such that, that uh, through globalization in uh, offshoring jobs to China and South Vietnam and Mexico and all these other places, it brings cheaper products at home, generates uh, in the management at the top enormous sums of money with stock options, and then eliminates lots of jobs at home. So you have this tremendous imbalance and that makes the housing situation uh, very painful and very difficult. But then responding to it at the state or local level becomes virtually impossible in a very complete way because it, would, it takes the federal government. 
And for the federal government, it may take uh, measures as big as the current uh, infrastructure bill, $3.5 trillion, which is running into a lot of trouble because it's too big. So if you really put all that together, you could say, well, the housing price is pricing more and more people out of the market. But the solution uh, is beyond uh, the current politics of America or the current arrangement of the global economy and how the market works. Uh, so when you think about all that, uh, it's, it's an issue that you can write about. Uh, but the idea that you're going to uh, get a, a million-dollar house and you're going to put in public money and subsidize the, the builder so he can uh, sell it for maybe 300000 and therefore the government's got to pay 700000 uh, which is not outlandish. That could be the case. Well, you're not going to have very many of those. You, you, and you're not. When you have 12 million houses and uh, you need another million, and are you going to put a, a, seven, a 500, just say $500 subsidy for each one of those? What's $500 times a million? Is that plausible for the state of California? I don't think so. So it's, we have a lot of problems that are dilemmas. Uh, they're predicaments. And, uh, and yet, in the flow of, of journalism and, and public discourse, uh, it's very difficult to, uh, to parse out the, the elements, the issues, in ways you can understand uh, what, what, what's actually going on and what might be the path forward. When you ran for president, or the times you ran for president, was part of the idea that these problems, obviously the problems you're describing right now are contemporary, but there have been big problems, national problems, global problems for a very long time over your career. When you ran for president, was part of the idea that these issues were bigger than California and that you needed a bigger stage and a bigger kind of um, you know platform to be able to solve these predicaments? Well, I don't know if I, I wouldn't say I need a bigger stage. That's a, a funny way to put it. I liked and I was drawn to, the, uh, to reflection and focus on larger issues, like, for example, uh, the possibility of, of a nuclear blunder uh, through accident and miscalculation, uh, the massacre of Mayan uh, farmers and peasants in Guatemala, uh, the uh, war, you know, the various wars in the Middle East. These are really interesting, uh, climate. Or uh, restoring trains. Uh, when I was a young child, well, I do remember a ride uh, on the daylight uh, down to Los Angeles and then on the train to Palm Springs and then back uh, on the Lark. Uh, or I think we went down on the Lark and we came back on the daylight. Uh, now that was probably, that was probably 1944, probably. It was during World War II. So that was exciting. I think trains are good. And when I drive down Interstate 5 or Interstate 80, and I see one car after another, sometimes it's bumper to bumper, uh, going through uh, various areas of congestion. And you see massive trucks, massive trucks along Interstate 5, delivering more and more stuff, most of which is made, uh, at least in part, in China or Mexico or some faraway place. So we've, we've created this this very big economy and uh, uh, how, we, how we manage it and how we understand it uh, is interesting. And it, it, so uh, the governorship deals with a lot of mundane stuff. It's important, you know, whether it's uh, reading programs or uh, 
state tests or highways. You know, that's it. That's a big topic, highways. Or Medi-Cal. These are interesting things. But I think war and peace and climate, uh, that, or whether we can restore the train system, that, that's also very interesting. And that's why uh, I advocated for a high-speed rail in California. Uh, Schwarzenegger was bold enough to embrace that, and we're continuing it, uh, as is Newsom. But of course, there's a lot of resistance, because unlike China, which has 20,000 miles of high-speed rail, uh, America, uh, a lot of important politicians find it very hard to conceive of putting up the enormous sums that, that are required. And uh, obviously, they are more content uh, with uh, however many cars. California has 25 million cars burning 18 billion gallons of gasoline and diesel, and you have the trucks in. I mean, that's not viable. We're not going to get off oil and gas that way. So, uh, so the, therefore, the train makes a lot of sense to me, but it makes no sense uh, to, the, to certain writers and certain politicians. But I think I don't see how we, uh, I don't see how we keep multiplying the private passenger vehicle and even if we go to um, uh, all renewable energy, it, it's still an inefficient way to go, and it will still cause congestion and, and uh, sprawl. So I, I, I think I think so. But doing a, a, originally in 1980, I campaigned for the idea of of a, of a bullet train, a high speed rail, instead of putting the MX missile on railroad cars. That was a serious idea in 1979. And why? Because the MX missile, which is now in silos, are sitting ducks. There's no question that if Russia launched the surprise attack, they could wipe out all those missiles. So the obvious point was to escape what was called the window of vulnerability, we had to put the missiles on railroad cars and keep them moving all over the western part of the United States in a way that the Soviets would never know where they are and, since they don't, and we'd have decoys. Well, the trouble with that is the individual states resisted and then Congress could never vote for it. So uh, we don't have a mobile MX missile and we don't have a mobile passenger car at a high speed. And I think we do. I think it's a great investment, but it takes something we don't have. Long-term uh, horizon and consensus across political party over time. That's what it takes. If we just sit back, and let Detroit build cars, easier, uh, but it's highly destructive uh, over the long term. California right now is obviously going through this recall election campaign. And every governor since 1960, when your father was in office, has been subject to recall drives of varying potency. Only one has succeeded, obviously, against Gray Davis in 2003. It's a very strange part of our state's history. Uh, particularly recent history. Why do you think the idea of a recall is so popular in California? Well, I don't think it is so popular. There's a lot of people who don't like it, and we'll see. And I think it's going to be uh, the no vote is going to win, which would indicate, uh, in part, people are voting because they don't like the recall, uh, and also in part because they don't think the governor should be uh, recalled because they they agree with most of, most of all of what he's doing. So the recall. Uh, was an effort to break the power of the Southern Pacific Railroad. That was a dominant power. And uh, so that was one of the tools that some progressive people thought about. And it's, uh, it occurs in 
many other states, but by no means all. So that was the idea. It was, a, it was an instrument to break the stranglehold. Of course, today we have the stranglehold in Washington uh, with the filibuster, with the Senate uh, giving undue weight to smaller numbers of people who live in small states um, in various other factors. And now, of course, many states are trying to limit uh, voting and make it more difficult. So uh, uh, we are facing a stranglehold far greater than the Southern Pacific Railroad. But the answer uh, will be much more difficult than just electing Hiram Johnson, uh, which California did. Should our law be changed to stop or to deter recalls? Uh, I think they are very strange in many ways counterproductive, but I don't, I don't think you can change it. You say, should? Uh, you mean should according to your mind or mine or according to what Californians would vote for? Because the only way you can change it is to get a two-thirds vote, which you might be able to get, out of the California legislature, put it on the ballot, and then see the people vote yay or nay on recall. I would tend to think they would vote no on that because you're taking power away from the people. Now, the people probably won't be convinced, as you may think, that they're not responsible. See, the people generally, each one who votes will think, I'm responsible. Now, the pundits and the commentators will say, oh, no, people are very irresponsible. Look at the crazy things they do. Uh, and that is the basis of getting rid of the recall. So I think it, it is awkward and cumbersome and certainly a distraction in time. We have a lot more serious things that the governor and Californians ought to be focused on. You referred earlier in our conversation to Modoc County versus San Diego and just the vast range and disparities and diversity in California. And I'm wondering if, you know, with these initiatives and these regulations and these sectarian political regions from north to south, can California as it's structured even be governed by one person in the present day? Well, one person doesn't govern. The, the governor, uh, you know, the, the journalists like to cover the governor because that's the governor. That's a convention. That's not built into the necessity of reality. It just is what all the newspaper people get together and in their minds or somehow, and they all agree uh, statements by governor are more important than someone who's not a governor. So that creates the impression that the governor is running things, but the governor can, can veto, can appoint, uh, can do things. But this is a very complex state. The government is complex between the state, uh, the city, the county, special districts, school districts, okay? Uh, but the state is complicated. LA is a different than San Francisco certainly more different than the San Joaquin Valley, Fresno, Merced. So when you say it can be governed, yeah, it is governed. But will it be governed without discontent? No, uh, because what uh, people have different perspectives. Water. Uh, Los Angeles will take a different view than Northern California. And that shows up in the what used to be called the peripheral canal. It's now calling the, the uh, uh, Delta Diversion uh, so that water can be delivered not just to Southern California, but to um, the Valley uh, and to Santa Clara Valley for business, for homes, as well as farming. So uh, there, there are different perspectives, and that's inherent in a big state. Our power is because we're so big and because we have all these industries and access to the Pacific and what have you. Uh, but the uh, other side of that is that there will always be significant groups of people in the millions who won't like the way things are going. 
What do you think people outside California misunderstand about our state? This is your chance to set them straight. What do they miss? Which people? People outside California. People who, You're hypothesizing a people somewhere who's thinking, and you want me to tell me what their thoughts are. That's a very funny question. Well, you have been a you've been a figure on the national political stage for you know half yeah. a century, and you've probably heard a lot of perceptions about California that maybe have been misplaced. And I was curious what you thought some of those might be the most the common ones you hear. I mean, the funny perception. Sure. California, the land of fruits and nuts, which it is, by the way, we're the world leader in the production of fruits and nuts. Um, I don't know. I think I can't really say because people in New York and Manhattan will have one view. Uh, people in Jackson, Mississippi will have another view. I don't suppose people think about California. Uh, more conservative people are going to look askance at uh, California and always will with Hollywood and, and uh, free speech and Summer of Love and uh, many things like that. Uh, so California has been, you know, rock and roll and all those kind of things. There's a lot going on. So it, I have I have a hard time getting my hands around California because it, it's the very diversity of California. The very thing that you're talking about makes it hard. And you can always find somebody. You know, if you go into a bar in Kansas City, you'll get somebody. Oh yeah, there's guys in California. So you can get a lot of guys on bar stools pontificating one way or another, and some of it will ring true, others will just be the prejudice of the person speaking. So I would say California, there's it, 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 a lot of things you're talking about, and we've been doing it in, in, during this uh, half hour here. But uh, I don't know that I want to invent uh, imaginary uh, observers and then conjure up what their observation might be and then offer a critique of those observations. That seems to be a very convoluted intellectual enterprise that may not shed the light that you would hope for. Okay, well, at risk of asking you to rank opportunities here in California, what do you think is the biggest opportunity that California has to make a positive impact in the years ahead? It could be solutions to housing or solutions to climate or something else. What do you think California has an opportunity to really make a valuable contribution to and how can it capitalize? Yeah, I don't know that I, I, I'm going to have a hard time saying a biggest opportunity. I certainly think uh, climate is an important opportunity and California is well positioned because of its institutional capacity. California Air Resources Board, uh, the Independent System Operator, the State Energy Commission, these are bureaucratic institutions that have uh, real power, real coercive and persuasive power uh, to move the society. And since climate, uh, we see it, the fires and the floods is, is ever present and looming and getting worse, I think there's a lot of opportunity for California to take positive steps uh, that will provide some positive example for the rest of the country. But I would say that that's not uh, the only thing. There's all sorts of things that education, uh, half the kids from kindergarten to senior year in high school are of, of uh, Latino, Spanish-speaking background. So how does that group of people, with their some rather unique uh, strengths and, and issues, how does that uh, work to provide uh, the scientists and the citizenry uh, that a modern state needs? So, so there's a real opportunity 
in education. Uh, and there, there could be others depending upon uh, what, uh, uh, what your, your thought may be. I, uh, I used to go to St. Cecilia's Church for Sunday Mass with my father and mother. And the pastor, Father Collins, Monsignor Collins, would always make us walk down the aisle and sit in the front. So I always found it a little embarrassing. And Monsignor Collins said, St. Cecilia's Church, it's the best, it's the greatest of any church, you know, what? he was very superlative. Um, well, some people say, everything we do in California, we're the best, we're the greatest, we're the national model. Well, I think we ought to just stick to our knitting and, uh, you know, work on these issues. California is not putty in the hands of either politicians, uh, journalists, artists, or businessmen. Each of those kind of people do have impact. But California is is reality, a complex reality. It's not Nevada. It's not Texas. Uh, so it does have some identifying marks. But it is its own self. And I think you can bite into an issue and, and deal with it. But if you try to rank it and say, okay, uh, we're going to show Texas on job development. And you measure how many jobs do we create? I think that there's an ebb and flow uh, to, to life and, and uh, only uh, it, it isn't quick. It, it, journalism has to be in commentary on the, this conversation. It's got to be, okay, what about this? What are you going to do? Uh, but life uh, is more gradual and more evolutionary and involving many, many different factors. So that's why I don't want to rank it. Uh, what, is, what is California's example to the world? You know, is it freeways? Maybe it could be the, the high-speed rail if we ever get it done. Uh, there are a lot of things. I'd say, though, in our stewardship of the environment, particularly uh, the air, uh, the atmosphere, both uh, air pollution and uh, climate heat-trapping uh, heat gases, California is doing quite a lot. But, you know, Shakespeare, uh, I don't know what he thought about it, but he, he has a line in there uh, that comparisons are odious. Uh, one of the uh, editions I saw, odorous. But whatever it is, Shakespeare had a concern about comparisons. So I would offer that in response to what is California's lesson for the rest of the world. I love the way you phrase that, the example to the world, the lesson to the world. I think that's uh, perhaps a more constructive way to look at it. I agree. Well, well we could say don't, don't lock up people anymore like we did the Japanese. That would be a good lesson. But even California, even though Earl Warren supported it and wanted it, it was Roosevelt who engineered that one. So we can, I think we learn more from our mistakes than our successes. Yeah. We end with the same question for all guests. And uh, considering your antipathy toward superlatives and comparisons, maybe instead of asking who your favorite Californian, past or present, is, maybe you can just let us know a Californian who's left a significant impact on you or someone you remember fondly and, and how they impacted you. I mean, some historical personage. It could be Monsignor Collins for that matter. No. Well, I certainly remember him. Uh, he was a character. Uh, that's for sure. And from a bygone era, a pre-Vatican II world, that uh, the Latin mass and many, many things are uh, no longer with us. So you want to know of a person? Of a yeah. Like I, for example, like I think back Miriam Powell's biography of 
of the Browns of California. Um, I've spoken to her for this podcast too. She's been awesome. And her book is really the cornerstone of this whole project for me. And she wrote really evocatively about your relationship with and work with Cesar Chavez. That, that's kind of what I'm thinking about. Like, who have you worked with or who have you encountered? Who have you collaborated with, negotiated with, or had any relationship with in your in your public life or private life for that matter that, you, that really stands out to you as um, a noteworthy Californian? Well, certainly Cesar Chavez does. And I visited him at La Paz uh, not too long before he, he died in Arizona. But this was in, uh, in Kern County. And there weren't a lot of people around. And we had a, uh, we had a good extended conversation. So I found him an unusual person. Uh, as it turns out, as Miriam Powell has pointed out, uh, with real flaws, uh, but a charismatic quality that is not ordinary or common, just his presence. There are other people like that that I've met, Mother Teresa, uh, Dorothy Day. Who's that? What, Dorothy Day? Yeah. Dorothy Day is a uh, founder of the Catholic Worker Movement. She was a very extraordinary person. Uh, but for me, uh, just people that have influenced me, or I find both personally and intellectually, uh, Gregory Bateson was another. Gregory Bateson was a uh, anthropologist. Uh, He'd married one of his, he had three wives. One of them was Margaret Mead. And he was a, a man who, who wrote a book called Steps to Ecology of Mind, or another book called Mind and Nature. And very elegant. Uh, when he spoke, he, his father was a Don at Cambridge. Uh, very uh, abstract, not uh, always easy to follow, uh, but, but uh, impressive and charismatic in a very different way. But these are two people whose ideas I still think about. Uh, I think about today. You know, I think about the U.S.-China relationship or America in the Middle East. Uh, Bateson uh, very much uh, uh, expressed and wrote about cybernetics. And that is the interaction between uh, various parts and that one part uh, affects the other part which affects that part. So when we relate to China, we are causing part of what China does. And so we then react to in part what we ourselves cause. And China does the same thing. So we're constantly reacting. We're, in, we're caught in a, in a loop of, of interactions. And seeing the world that way is very important to, um, to try to get out of these muddles that we get ourselves in. And we often think, oh, and we point to the other. Why can't that? We got to change that other side. And we don't think of what we're doing. Think about the people that I've met, uh, certainly uh, Chavez and Dorothy Day uh, come to mind, although I only met Dorothy Day once uh, and listened to her for a couple hours. Right? So some people you read about, some people you encounter. And, uh, but there's so many people. You know, when you're, old, you're 83 years old, I've met literally thousands of people. I've had hundreds and hundreds of serious extended conversations with a wide variety of people, from Herman Kahn to Henry Kissinger uh, to Mother Teresa uh, to, uh, you know, a debate with Pete Wilson and Bill Clinton. So, I mean, there's such a, a range that it becomes uh, uh, distorting. To, to glibly pick one experience out and say, 
That's the one. And then from that pivot into all manner of narrative and explanation. Governor Jerry Brown, it has been a true honor and a thrill to have you on the show for our first episode. Thank you so much for being here. It's been great talking to you. My pleasure. And there you have it, Governor Jerry Brown on What is California? What a guy. One of a kind, right? Such a thrill to have him on the show. And uh, thanks to him and thanks to you for listening. Really appreciate you being here for the premiere episode of this humble undertaking. I look forward to next week. We'll be back with a new episode, new guests. And in the meantime, there is an election. I'm sure you've heard on Tuesday, September 14th. So make sure you vote. All right, please vote wherever you stand, whatever you think, make sure your voice is heard. What is California is produced, hosted and edited by me, Stu Van Airsdale. Our theme music is by Sounds Supreme. You can find us on Twitter at WhatCalifornia. We're also on Substack, that free newsletter, whatiscalifornia.substack.com. You can support What Is California on Patreon. That's at patreon.com slash whatiscalifornia. Just look me up, Stu Van Airsdale. I would love to hear from you. If you want to reach out, go ahead and get in touch via Twitter. You can DM me there or send me an email at hello at whatiscalifornia.com. I'd love it if you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like What Is California, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find us. That's it. I appreciate you listening. Thanks again for being here for our debut. Make sure you celebrate California Admission Day responsibly. I look forward to catching you next week. Until then, remember, keep your eye on the bear.